Greetings and welcome to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in our modern world. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship and the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie. This week's lesson, The Myth of Redemptive Violence. Please welcome Reverend George Wolfe. Hello, and welcome to Converging Streams. One of the most influential and thought-provoking Christian theologians of our day is Walter Wink, Professor Emeritus of Biblical Interpretation at Auburn Theological Seminary in New York City, and author of The Powers That Be, a book dealing with what he calls the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence comes from an ancient Babylonian creation story known as the Enuma Elish, and dates from about 1250 BCE. In this story, creation is the result of a gruesome act of violence. Marduk, a god who is the superhero in the myth, murders and dismembers Tiamat, the mother god and dragon of chaos. He splits open her skull, scatters her blood, and from her corpse creates the cosmos as the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur observes in his book, The Symbolism of Evil, order is established by means of disorder. Chaos, symbolized by Tiamat, is prior to order, which is represented by Marduk, the high god of Babylon. Evil precedes good. The gods themselves are violent. This Babylonian myth also has its comparable version in, the, in Hindu mythology, where the body of Purusha, the supreme cosmic spirit, is dismembered by the gods to bring forth creation. Expressed in more general terms, the myth of redemptive violence is an archetypal story where a superhero, representing good, is pitted against an evil and equally powerful villain, representing evil. The superhero, after much struggle and suffering, finally, through violence, vanquishes the villain restoring order, and reestablishing good over evil. In this general sense, one sees this archetypal plot reenacted time and time again in movies like Star Wars, for example, or cartoons like Popeye the Sailor Man. According to Walter Wink, the myth of redemptive violence, quote, enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It is one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. The myth of redemptive violence is the story of victory of order over chaos by means of violence. It is the ideology of conquest, the original religion of the status quo. Again, that's from Walter Wink's book, The Powers That Be. Wink, however, also points out that the biblical creation myth found in Genesis exists in stark contrast to the Babylonian story. Again, to quote Professor Wink, the biblical myth in Genesis 1 is, di is diametrically opposed to this. The Bible portrays a good God who creates a good creation. Chaos does not resist order. Good is prior to evil. Neither evil nor violence is part of creation, but enter later as a result of the first couple's sin and the convivience of the serpent. A basically good reality is thus corrupted by free decisions reached by creatures. 
in this far more complex and subtle explanation of the origin of things, violence emerges for the first time as a problem requiring solution. Again, that's from Walter Wink's The Powers That Be. In reflecting on this dramatic difference in creation stories, I began to look for other nonviolent creation myths, myths that are harmonious and transformational rather than violent. Some readers may be familiar with the ancient Lenape Native American story of the earth being raised out of the primordial waters on the back of a turtle. Despite the existence of these nonviolent transformational creation myths, the violent creation myths appear to have had a far more enduring influence on the human psyche. For later in Genesis, when God realizes the ways of humans are evil, it is said that he destroys the world with a violent, all-consuming flood. And centuries later, in the Christian scriptures, the Day of Judgment is conceived of as a violent act, with the great final battle of Armageddon preceding the triumphant return of Christ. Indeed, such violent creation and recreation myths preoccupy popular religion today and too often convince world leaders that war is an inevitable part of the human condition and even a wholly human response. In addition, violent myths are told by the victors and become part of religiously inspired stories or histories. Jewish writers were exceptionally good at integrating myth and history and did so in such a convincing way, such that, for many people, it is difficult to determine where history leaves off and myth begins. It is known, for example, that the Israelites spent time in Egypt, that they migrated from Egypt through the desert, eventually settling in the land of Canaan. But did Moses really part the Red Sea, as it says in the book of Exodus, and hear God's voice in a burning bush, Did his staff really turn into a serpent when he threw it on the ground? The miracle of the Jewish Passover, where God sends the plague of the firstborn over Egypt in a final attempt to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelites from slavery, presents us with another dilemma. Consider the Passover story from the vantage point of a young Egyptian wife who, after three years of marriage, finally gives birth to a son who subsequently dies from the plague. When told it was the God of Israel who sent this plague to free his people from Pharaoh's bondage, she sees nothing but injustice. Why would God commit such a horrible genocidal act to liberate a people? In this religiously inspired history, one person's miracle turns out to be another person's tragedy. Realizing this, I have asked myself, Must creation necessarily arise out of violence? Or expressed another way, is violence truly necessary to change or transform the world? If we look to the natural world, we do certainly see creation arising out of violence. It was a violent volcanic eruption that created the awesome and picturesque coastline on the Caribbean island of St. Lucia. But the natural world also reveals harmonious, creative processes of rebirth and transformation that are not violent and disruptive. In the Earth's temperate zones, such a process can be observed every spring as life reawakens from lying dormant during the winter months. 
perennial flowers emerge from their winter graves, and caterpillars are soon transformed into butterflies. But these natural, harmonious, transformational processes are gradual and uneventful. Humans, unfortunately, tend to be impatient, provoking change in ways that are too often detrimental to our planet and to the human condition. Psychologist Sigmund Freud theorized that social pressures force one to repress our aggressive instincts. Over time, this repression creates inner conflict until our repressed aggressive tendencies are given an opportunity to be expressed in the legalized violence of war. If Freud is correct, there will always be a need for police and government military organizations to provide retaliatory capabilities as a deterrent to the expression of innate aggressive behavior. A counter-argument to Freud's belief is that deterrence to aggression can be provided through positive means. That is, rather than deterring violence by negative consequences, such as through fines or imprisonment, the deterrence can be a cooperative symbiotic relationship, the benefits of which would be lost if the rules that sustain the cooperative relationship are violated. The more a society makes use of positive methods of deterrence, the less reliance there would have to be on police, jails, and military institutions. Sigmund Freud also proposed that injury and rage have its psychological roots in narcissism. As he so defined, narcissistic injury occurs when you take as a personal attack an injury to a member of the group to which you belong. If someone attacks a member of your family and you react as if it were an attack on yourself, you are experiencing narcissistic injury. And if, in your anger, you decide to return to attack a member of your aggressor's family, other than the person who was actually responsible for the original attack, you are engaging in a calculated form of narcissistic rage, or what may be called narcissistic revenge. The group to which you belong, however, may be much larger than your family. It can, for example, be defined as the race to which you belong, your nationality, or your religious sect. After September 11, 2001, Americans who sought to take revenge against Muslims solely because the 9-11 attackers were Muslim and Islamic extremists who seek to kill Americans solely because they are Americans are experiencing narcissistic injury and engaging in narcissistic revenge. Once a conflict reaches this psychological level, the number of people that join the conflict can increase exponentially because revenge is being taken against individuals not initially part of the dispute. The individuals involved in the conflict no longer are seeking justice against the actual perpetrators, but are pursuing revenge against a group that has been stereotyped. If Freud's models are correct, we have little reason to be optimistic that humanity will ever overcome its predilection for violence, especially in the political arena. Throughout history, power has proven itself to be a dangerous temptress, and resorting to redemptive violence is often a temptation nationalistic leaders and the people who follow them find too hard to resist. If humanity is ever to evolve into a nonviolent race, 
we must develop the wisdom to control and subdue our repressed instincts. Conquering our primitive defense mechanisms that respond out of fear and deceive the mind into thinking that violence is the answer. This inner conquest has been achieved by certain nonviolent in- individuals from every religious tradition, saints, as it were, who come to reflect the light of the divine image in which we were created, as the moon, when full, radiantly reflects the light of the sun. But the appearance of such leaders is far too infrequent. A more genuine effort must be made to provide each person with the technique to experience self-transcendence, whereby one is freed from the negative attachments of resentment, jealousy, hatred, and revenge. For ultimately, the myth of redemptive violence takes place within us. It is an allegory for the human condition. Subconsciously, each one of us wishes we could emerge as hero, ending the uncertainty we fear as chaos by imposing, through whatever means necessary, our own vision of order and justice. But by recognizing and renouncing this gripping primal urge, we awaken ourselves to a higher path. From such an awakening, we learn to benefit from coincidence, rechanneling the negative power it has over us into the positive direction of compassion, reconciliation, and freedom. This is George Wolfe for Converging Streams. Thank you for listening to Converging Streams, interfaith fellowship in our modern world. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship with content and financial support from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie and technical support from radio stations WCRD and Work FM. Most importantly, we thank you, our listeners and followers, for your support. To connect with Converging Streams, including listening to our entire catalog of past programs, getting our latest new content, and making your own contribution to this program, visit our website, convergingstreams.org. Converging Streams is produced by Tony Piazza, George Wolfe, and Thomas Perchlick. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.